This is the second half of my interview with Rose Cocchiaro, who is a family law specialist at Resolve Divorce Lawyers. In this part, Rose explains the financial and non-financial elements of divorce, including division of assets, child support, and spouse support payments. If you haven't listened to the first part of my interview with Rose, head over to episode 23A, where we discuss prenups and binding financial agreements. This podcast is not financial advice, and all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Please seek professional advice before making any financial or investment decision. So let's move on to when things go bad. We've kind of already started going down that pathway, I think. And last year, we saw the huge divorce settlement of Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, where his now ex-wife, Mackenzie, received about $38 which made her then the third richest woman in the world automatically. Can you explain the process of separation and divorce and when the financials can kind of be assessed? Probably about... A third of people come in before the separation um, that we see and otherwise um, it's after the separation. Uh, But generally uh, people have made the decision, generally it's an argument um, that ends up in um, uh, that final uh, decision but we often find that one person's been considering the separation for a lot longer than the other. Um, But either way they make the decision to separate and then they um, they need then to work out um, what that looks like for the purposes of the, the whole situation. There's a number of claims are available. There's a property settlement claim, which is what we've been talking a lot about. There's uh, spousal support uh, and maintenance. Uh, there's child support. And then there's um, the obvious care arrangements for the children that need to be sorted out. So basically, it's got the three components, which are the property division, the children, and then the spouse maintenance. Maybe let's start with the property first, and then we'll go through each one. Yeah, so um, the property settlement is um, is is simply uh, a consideration of what the asset pool for division uh, is available now, and that's as we were talking before, the property that each of them uh, have a legal or equitable interest in, uh, and then um, how each of them have contributed to um, the acquisition, conservation, and maintenance of the property that's there. So what what is it that um, uh, they did financially and non financially toward um, the um, the provision? of assets? Did they accumulate uh, or did they contribute in a homemaker parent role? Uh, Were there inheritances that came in? Were there gifts? Were there um, uh, redundancy payments? So all sorts of questions as well as, you know, what other, were there any significant wastage arguments as we discussed before? And so all of of the um, information is sort of ascertained and then um, we look at um, income earning capacities and um, care arrangements for the children, uh, the health and age of each of the parties and a number of different other uh, considerations that speak to the future and we look to seeing how the asset pool could be divided in a way that um, creates a just and equitable split of what the um, division of assets um, looks like and and that decision however is discretionary so what is just and equitable is discretionary I often say if it if it was that simple, I would have an app on my phone and I'd literally plug it in and tell you the answer. Um, but it's only ever a range and it's only ever up to the judge uh, on the day to work out um, who he thinks is more credible and how he thinks he or she thinks that the division of um, assets should be should be uh, made. So for that reason, it's um, it's 
difficult to advise clients about an exact adjustment that their asset pool should should be brought into uh, and made. Um, you can only ever talk in a range of outcomes that a court might um, court might give. Okay, so things the assets which have got you know numbers attached to them, such as the family home, the investment portfolio, the superannuation, uh, are kind of lumped in together. So it's not exactly that's a superannuation. We add them all together, and then we're going to split half each. It all really gets uh, negotiated on as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Yeah, we look at it as an asset pool. So we look at what we we generally start with real estate um, and what the net position is, the uh, obviously personal effects and cars and jewelries and things like that, any savings, shares, investment portfolios, um, any interests in uh, trust structures or companies. um, Often um, now, obviously, Trust, the trusts don't aren't owned by anybody, but in family law, we can apportion ownership um, because of um, the level of um, involvement and control that each party has. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's a, a minefield, that area. But essentially, if the husband and wife have a family trust of which they are trustees and beneficiaries and um say one or both of them are appointors of the trust, um, quite quite squarely all the assets of the trust will fall within the asset pool for division. Uh, sometimes um, when uh, things aren't so clear, uh, that's when there's a, it's questionable as to whether the assets fall within, whether the trust assets, sorry, fall within the asset pool for the matrimonial division or not. So, with uh, say from a medical perspective, a lot of uh, people in private practice or doctors in private practice would have a service trust of which their family trust will hold that unit uh, in the discretionary business. How does future income from that trust distribution actually um, get decided upon? Because yes, they may have bought the unit, but that that unit is really a stake on future distributions of their own work. So if you mean by way of their income, so if they've used it just as a a method through which they distribute their income for tax effective purposes, Mm -hmm. um, then, um, then all of those distributions, they're, they're no, it's, it's taken no differently uh, than any other income coming through. We'll, the income will follow the person that's earning it. So um, it'll be the case that even if you've distributed out to other family members, the uh, your income will be assessed as, as you earned it throughout the relationship and then that's what you have the capacity to earn on an ongoing basis. Uh, right, that's... Yep, and so that would apply to say a share in a medical practice as well. If someone had bought in to to be an ownership stakeholder, yeah. So that would not just we wouldn't just look at income. That would be an ownership. So that would be a business value. We'd need to understand um, what percentage ownership they had within um, the corporate structure uh, of the business, and then does that business um, have value in and of itself? Um, is there a goodwill component toward that business? And and if so, um, what is the share of um, that that the spouse has in in, in that to um, then attribute the, that value to the asset? Yeah. And how about some funny assets like frequent flyer miles, credit card points, collectibles and pets? All into the asset pool. So anything you can think of that has a value will be into the asset pool. Even so... Uh, long service leave, um, as long as it's got cash surrender, there's a cash surrender component to it, it'll form part of the asset pool. 
So Yep, so that's um, covered kind of property division. And now let's move on to child support. What are the things that people need to consider in, in child support when it comes to calculating how much they might be up for and how long does that have to extend for in years? Yeah, so um, child support um, is payable by parents um, for children until they're 18. It's legislated by the Child Support Assessment Act. Again, that's another juris- uh, federal uh, act. And um, it determines um, based on a calculation of their income versus, uh, so each of the parties' uh, income versus the number of nights that each of them spend with the children and the ages of the children and then a calculation is performed um, based on what the average Australian child costs and um, then a determination, it's called an assessment, is made um, that one party owes the other party a certain amount of money per week and per month. And so you mentioned that, say, with medical uh, families, the the basic calculations may not be t- entirely relevant because there's the expectation of maintaining the standard of living. Yeah. So if, for example, um, children uh, cost more than um, than general gen- than the average child, and um, the parties have agreed together that they, for example, attend private schools, um, they've that's a that's a ground um, that is able to be departed from the general assessment on the basis that these children cost more than your average child because you've both agreed and intended um, that to be the case. And so um, then uh, in that case, you can object to the assessment being made at a a general level and an assessment can be made uh, more particularly to be adjusted based on those, those considerations. And how about spouse maintenance? When is that applicable and who's entitled to it? Yeah, so spousal maintenance is a payment from one spouse to another in circumstances where one spouse has an inability to provide for their needs adequately by virtue of care and control of children under 18 or um, an inability for gainful employment, um, perhaps for or for any other reason. So it's very broad, but it can be, you know, if you've been out of the workforce for a long period of time, um, uh, and you have no skills left, um, you can't you can't earn very much money uh, in comparison provided that um, the other spouse has a reasonable capacity to provide for your needs. So the two heads of the test need to be uh, satisfied in order for that to apply. Um, but generally, um, it's generally the case that it's that it's paid um, on a short-term interim basis, generally until um, you often see it until the property settlement is negotiated and finalised, but can often be and we often negotiate for uh, spouses of high-income earners uh, for those payments to continue on an ongoing basis until perhaps the children finish school or until that perhaps... um, that spouse um, undertakes a period of study, goes to university, does something to enable them to start working and earning uh, enough money to support themselves adequately. But the question of what is adequate is subjective. So it is different from child support. It's subjective to how you were living throughout the relationship and uh, in a a way that's um, meaningful to you and your family. Wow. So basically, if you go on holidays every other month to far off destinations, you have to continue that that 
after you break up for your spouse or ex-spouse? Um, well, look, that, that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but the, it's, it is, it's about looking at what's reasonable within the circumstances of um, adequacy that you were living in the relationship so that the disparity isn't so um, enormous between the two of you. Um, but it's but that's not to say that the intention of spousal support is to fund an ongoing lifestyle for the rest of their life at that same level. Um, but it is just during the period that they can get themselves on track. Yep. And how do things like domestic violence, drug addiction and infidelity play into the distribution of, you know, property, kids and, um, you know, spouse maintenance afterwards? Do they play a big role? Infidelity? Nothing. There's no, um, nothing. I think America is different, but in Australia, it's a no-fault jurisdiction, which means it doesn't matter whose fault it was that the relationship broke up. Uh, it makes no difference to the division of property, the amount of time you spend with the children, nothing like that. Domestic violence has an impact on um, time spent with children, as I alluded to earlier. Um, and so if the children, um, if there was family violence throughout the relationship and um, uh, the uh, it has an impact and it is, it's, it's such a broad question, but the, the concept of um, uh, children is whatever's in their best interest. It's a paramount consideration. And, um, and so um, protecting the children from harm, we look at whether there's a, a risk to the children of um, of uh, being suffering from from family violence themselves, or even being exposed to it by um, by what they saw throughout the relationship and the impact that that has had on them. And gambling addictions, uh, again, we spoke about that before. That comes into um, a wastage argument when it comes to property settlement, but doesn't really have anything else other to do with children. Yeah. Okay. And so, how much does it cost to to get divorced? Oh, how long is a piece of string? Um, so every every matter is different. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter how many zeros necessarily are on the end uh, of the asset pool. It is about how well the people will negotiate. If you're sensible, uh, reasonable, you're willing to um, be respectful in your in your negotiations, uh, and um, and and you don't make tension or conflict um arise not I, w- I wouldn't say inexpensively but but it can be can be done quickly uh, and sensibly if filing a consent order is what it is you need to bring about a um finalization of your property settlement and so um that document um you know that document can even be done um yourselves you don't have to have legal advice to do the application for consent orders and the minute of order obviously we always recommend you do because the consent orders are drafted in a way um that um have legally binding effect and they need to be enforceable so um we always recommend that but we have um uh, fixed fee packages for uh, the preparation of consent orders. Um, we've recently launched a divorce bar, which covers all of that. So if, if you've reached an agreement with your spouse and you just need the paperwork drawn up, that can be an inexpensive fixed fee um, result to do. It's um, it's when you can't agree and you need to then negotiate and um, have support in the way you negotiate, that's when it can become more and more expensive. Let's get a bit bold and the beautiful. I've heard cases where leading into a divorce, 
a doctor might hold back their billings uh, to reduce their accessible income. What are some other sneaky tactics that seem like a good idea at the time, but ultimately end up being discovered when uh, the negotiations happen? I'd probably say the one biggest one is um, when uh, people ask their accountant to set up their ownership of um, trust structures in a way that asserts them to have no interest in uh, the assets when they are um, in actual fact controlling controlling the ins and outs of, of what occurs. Um, so if they, um, say, um, try to distance themselves for the purposes of looking like they don't own the asset, perhaps put it in their parents' um, to uh, names to coordinate and their the, the elderly parents are the appointors uh, and trustees. And so really trying to assert real distance between themselves and the assets despite the fact that they're the ones that are um, contributing to the asset. They're the ones that um, own the, the actual um, uh, the, the income, the stream, the benefiting from it, etc. So that's a big one. Putting assets in the names of others. I mean, we see lots of people that transfer cars and share all sorts of stuff to brothers and sisters and or parents, say that it's not theirs. And the other big one we spoke about was um, people asserting that gifts were given uh, that gifts that were actually given were in actually in actual fact loans. You you won't be surprised. There's like loan agreements that we see that have um, with dodgy dates on them, or even some people that put dates on a loan agreement after the date of separation, and um, and then say it was always intended to be a loan. We've just decided to call it in now. We we often see that. And so that's on things which are you know on paper and transferable and trackable. How about things which are more tangible, like is it possible to conveniently lose 10 handbags or 15 you know, Rolexes by stashing them at your parents' or brother's house before the property assessment occurs? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of people do that. They try to like take away um, uh, assets in the, in the house before it's found. I mean, that's, it. that's in the case that um, the couple themselves can't agree on what the assets, uh, what the, you know, personal assets are valued at um, so when it then when you need to then uh, appoint an independent valuer to come in and, and value the personal effects in the home I mean if you're doing that then you're you're pretty far down the level of conflict um, but in that case yeah people people uh, my, my advice to people is before they leave the house um, if they're the one moving out of the house or at the, as close as possible to the separation date go around and take photos of everything that's in the house um, all the watches all the wine cupboard, um, all the paintings, um, anything that um, you can assert has value um, uh, and uh, that um, may conveniently disappear, absolutely. And also, you know, keeping track of documentation um, that you can to prove what it is um, that you own. And we touched on t trusts before, but with trust distributions that may have occurred on paper for tax effectiveness over a period of decades even, is there any clawback that, uh, you know, one person who was receiving those distributions never actually received them into their bank account? Can they claw that back? No, they can't. Not, not if they were, they were made legitimately throughout the relationship as a um, as a distribution for the purposes of saving the party's tax. Um, the, the parties themselves in the marriage have had, a, had the benefit of of the income so um that uh that that person can't have their cake and eat it too and say oh well i i had the benefit of all the income throughout the relationship but now i want it all paid back to me it doesn't work that way 
Mm, okay. And so you take a collaborative approach to divorce with your clients. What does this mean? And is there such a thing as a happy divorce? And if so, what does that look like? <laughs> I think happy divorce is a bit of a stretch, but there can certainly be um, a, a, a respectful divorce journey that you can go on where you can um, uh, have a method of negotiation where the two of you sit down and decide um, what's best for your family, for both of you and your family. So collaborative practice and the methods of the negotiation that we promote, which is um, also beyond collaborative practice, are just around looking holistically at the assets that you have, looking at the um, situation the two of you are in uh, financially and non-financially, looking at what really matters to each of you and understanding your goals for the future and understanding what um, what what recognition you would each like for the um, the contributions you made throughout the relationship, bringing all of that to a head and then looking at how we can achieve your goals for the future based on what the asset pool consists of and, um, and then thinking creatively about doing that. So we often find that we negotiate property settlements, tying in um, children's uh, care arrangements, child support, spousal support, all part of the one package because they are all so interrelated. Um, it may be that, um, you know, often we split superannuation Um it's generally the case that superannuation isn't part of the asset pool. It's a sort of different category of asset, but we certainly include it as part of the overall um, wash-up. And it might be, though, that some people value superannuation more than others, uh, more than cash. So um, if we understand that as a goal for them, then we can creatively uh, in, in ensure that they can receive that. I just did a, a negotiation the other day. Uh, a lady brought into the relationship a house was really important for her to keep it what that meant for her and their family was that he was going to walk away with um, a huge superannuation portfolio but it meant that she got to keep her house um, that doesn't often often happen anymore she, he didn't have to do that um, but he understood that it mattered to her to keep the house over the super so it's just about being creative. Um, she also was able to negotiate that he paid 100% of the school fees and all the extracurricular and the health insurance premiums. So that to her was a really good outcome despite that she walked away with no super. So it's really about knowing instead of just getting getting ready for battle, sitting around and discussing it with everyone's views and kind of preferences together does sound like it makes it a bit better. It's like it's like coming from one family but just creating two homes out of the one family, like just seeing yourselves as a, as a unit still uh, and particularly when children are involved, which is like 85% of the matters, um, you know, it's about let's, you know, let's create an environment where um, we can... Um, both continue to stay civil, friend, you know, even friends, um, you know, for the benefit of, of of moving forward. But even if children aren't involved, it's uh, such a, a smoother and and more consistent process. But what it what involves is we also in, engage third parties, so we have the benefit of financial planners, accountants, um, and relationship specialists. Not all in, in the room at the same time, but often we have um, a financial planner and a relationship specialist with us around the table with the two um, spouses, just giving them support around future planning and um, that, that makeup of the asset pool and then helping to, to decide whether valuations are necessary or not 
Uh, and then the relationship specialist helps maintain the emotions in the room and helps them, you know, try to keep the conflict um, at a manageable level. So what ends up happening is it's a really sensible and productive uh, negotiation uh, run over over the course of a number of meetings. I'm running one at the moment and the um, the family is extremely wealthy. Family money's come down through generations. It's really important for um, my client to maintain the family legacy uh, and we're working from a needs-based perspective with his spouse to ensure that she receives a settlement that will suit her and, and we, for her lifetime. So we're planning her her for the rest of her life how much money she'll need on an ongoing basis and that's how we're driving that conversation which is very very different from a legal the letter of the law type of uh, split um, but gives both of them an outcome that they're um, they're more than happy to to walk away with. And with this approach, does the court have to get involved at all? Not at all. So like I was saying before about consent orders, the consent orders is the ultimate goal. And so what we um, will always try to do is what we negotiate in a way that will bring about a settlement so that we then just negotiate the deal draw up the documents in this, the um, uh, the application for consent orders and the minute of order and they're lodged with the court. The court seals the orders and confirms the orders and then they have their binding, uh, a binding effect. Very good. Well, thank you very much today, Rose, for taking the time to explain all these intricacies. It's definitely been um, an eye-opener for me and, and a good education process uh, as well for having known that a few friends have gone through but not knowing just how much they would have had to go through. How can listeners find out more about you or seek advice? Uh, all Everything you need to know about us is on um, our website. So it's resolvedivorce.com.au or otherwise LinkedIn. Um, we're all over social media. So you'll be able to find us if you just put that in a Google search. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rose. Have a good afternoon. Okay, thanks. If you're interested in learning how to optimize your finances, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, head over to my blog, medicalmoney.com and subscribe to stay updated. If you know a colleague who might also find this information useful, please share this with them. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.